Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we talk about the great books and great ideas that have shaped Western civilization. Naomi Reinhold is back to talk to me about the Nicomachean Ethics. Welcome, yep. Naomi. Um, so the Nicomachean Ethics is, my understanding is they are lecture notes that Aristotle uses. He was talking to his students about ethics. Well, there's some some disagreement about whether they're his notes for giving a lecture or notes that the students took while they were listening to the lecture. They're named after the recipient, as these things often are. Um, some people are like, oh, no, this is this is something he specifically meant for somebody. Other people say, no, 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 this is representative of typical Athenian youth. He's just like putting it out there. I think didactically, it's always valuable to at least bring this up because if you've never read Aristotle before, he is very like, here's this proposition. Here's an argument supporting this proposition. New proposition. And he just sort of like, if you're not used to sort of reading Aristotle's writing, it's a little, it has a little bit of a rhythm to it that's a little bit strange if you've never sort of encountered it before. And uh, <laughs> having, having, the story that these are lecture notes will be like, oh, okay. I'm not like read. He didn't set out for this to be sort of read in the same way as some other works that we might read. So he's concerned with ethics and, you know, ethics is a branch of philosophy that's concerned with right and wrong. Sometimes they talk about the honorable and the dishonorable or what is to be praised and what is to be blamed. But Aristotle is one of the foundational figures in a branch of ethics, a way of thinking about ethics that's called virtue ethics. Could you talk a little bit about what virtue ethics is and how it might be different from sort of other branch, other ways of thinking about ethics that other schools of philosophy might adopt as they're thinking about these questions? Sure. Generally speaking, ethical theories get divided up based on what they take to be uh, the good or the way of deciding what's good. And virtue ethics, modern virtue ethics, more so than Aristotle's, takes certain qualities of character to be the aim of any ethical system and also the measuring stick of what's good. So if somebody did something and they made a mistake, but they did it out of a good uh, state of character, they did it out of a good heart, maybe would be one way of talking about it, then a virtue ethicist is going to say, yeah, that's a good action. Whereas someone who is a consequentialist, someone who looks at the consequences of an action would say, no, what matters is how things turn out. You can have really great motives, but if you mess things up and you cause people damage, that's a bad action. And some of them will say, and you're a bad person for being that way. And others will say, well, this has nothing to do with the kind of person you are. That's for those virtue ethicists. There's also a branch that's called deontology, but basically it's about following the rules. There are certain kinds of actions that are categorically good or bad. Kant is sort of famously a deontologist, although I had a professor who argued that he wasn't really, but I'm not going to get into that. This is one of those things, The there's a murderer at the door scenario in deontology, and the idea is, you know, you're in your house, and somebody you know comes up and is like, there's this guy after me, he's going to kill me, he's got an axe, or, you know, whatever, hide me. And so you let him in your house, because you're not a terrible person, and then the guy comes up and he's got an axe, and he's like, 
have you seen this guy? I think I saw him go in your house. Now, so do you lie to protect the guy's life or do you tell the truth? Well, supposedly deontology is like, the rule is you don't tell a lie. The consequentialist is like, no, you lie like crazy to keep the guy because you don't want the consequence of the guy getting murdered. If you're a virtue ethicist, it's a little bit more complicated because you have to consider what the virtuous person would do. What is a sign of good character? But further, the virtue ethicist would say, the action isn't really the point. The point is, what's the character out of which the action takes place? And Aristotle is the earliest or the sort of underpinning of the virtue ethics of today. One of the things that is significant, if you sort of look at Aristotle's overall argument, it's that thing you said about, it's not the specific actions that you take. It's not any one action, I should say. Uh, Aristotle is very interested in, in, in habits, right? Mm-hmm. Are you, do you tend to make honest kinds of decisions rather than dishonest kind of decisions. It's not that any one action can sort of define you as a person. It's what are you sort of in the habit of doing? Is that right? Or is is it a little more complicated than that? Well, the habit is more a way of forming your character. It's tricky because different translations take things differently. But one common translation of what he takes virtue to be, and I wanna talk about virtue in a minute, is an active disposition toward a certain way of doing something or an active condition which is disposes one toward a certain kind of action. What gets translated as virtue is a, a word, arete, mm-hmm. which if you're going to translate it a little bit more ham-fistedly just means excellence. Right. And in the context of the Nicomachean ethics, what we're talking about is human excellence, which mm-hmm. is to say, what is it that makes a human an excellent human? It's not the same thing that that makes a tree an excellent tree or a cat an excellent cat or whatnot, right? So his first goal in the ethics is to figure out what is the really good thing toward which all human beings are, are pointed and how do we make ourselves the kind of beings that actually achieve that thing? Right. So arete is this very old concept even before Aristotle, like this is this is a concept that shows up in Homer, for instance. Achilles is really excellent at killing people, mm-hmm. um, and Aristotle is trying to ask, what are human beings the most excellent at? Right? We can be excellent at killing people. We can be excellent at, you know, sports, or we can be excellent at oratory or whatever. But he's sort of asking this question, like, what's the most sort of essentially human thing? that we can be excellent at. Right. And ultimately, and you can you can tell me if I've got this wrong here, he settles on this concept of eudaimonia, which, you know, sort of the traditional translation of that word is happiness. So let's talk about that just briefly. Mm-hmm. What does he have in mind when he's talking about this idea of eudaimonia or happiness? Well, eudaimonia is that good at which all human beings aim, Mm -hmm. or at least what they want to be aiming at, right? So eudaimonia is the end, the aim, and it is only achievable by living a life of virtue. Mm -hmm. Virtue is this active condition of the soul whereby a person may live a fully human life Mm -hmm. well, such that 
they are truly blessed or yeah. happy or this word eudaimonia. Yeah, there's one there's one section in the Nicomachean Ethics where he's where he says maybe a little bit hyperbolically, but he basically says like you can't know if someone lived a happy life until their life is over. Right. He's quoting some, Solon, I think. Yeah, there's some yeah. you know, there's some debate about uh you know, how how you know, how hyperbolic is he being there? But there's the sense that like we have you know, a more modern idea of happiness is this idea that we have this good feeling or we or we have a sense of satisfaction that is sort of tangible or sensible. And Aristotle is, you know, maybe that maybe that's part of maybe you do feel that satisfaction as you're living this virtuous life. But that's not exactly what he's talking about. He's sort of like you have to sort of see, you know, like you lived a a sort of worthy your obituary showed that you lived this like worthy sort of life and that's what it meant for you to be happy or have it have attained this goal yeah in the context where he uses it um a lot of his point is perhaps more aimed at the don't rest on your laurels kind of thing yeah like don't count yourself happy now like you're not done living a good life you're not going to be done until you're done, and then yeah. you can say, "Okay, yeah, now I'm happy. Now I'm fulfilled, or whatever." So this is this is something that you're like constantly striving throughout your life to attain. And one of the things that tends to sort of get short shrift in Aristotle's discussion of how you sort of attain happiness is his discussion of friendship. You wanted to talk about how, for as much as Aristotle talks about friendship in the Nicomachean ethics, it doesn't really get brought up as much as it probably deserves. So let's talk a little bit about, let's talk about Aristotle's view of friendship and kind of what he thinks, how that contributes to virtue and happiness and, you know, and what that looks like. Right. So there are 10 books, which is to say chapters in the Nicomachean Ethics. And out of those 10, two of them are dedicated to friendship. But when we tend to assign readings from Nicomachean Ethics, almost never are those two assigned. We almost do book one, book two, which are general, uh, what's the aim of a human life? What is virtue? What's arete? What's eudaimonia? And then we might skip to book six, where we talk about intellectual virtues in book 10, where we talk about happiness and pleasure and anyway, gets on like that. But book eight and nine, books eight and nine are on friendship. Aristotle says that friendship either is a virtue or is together with virtue and that no one is going to be happy without friends. That is to say, eudaimonia is not actually attainable by yourself. This comes out of a very Greek perspective. If I remember correctly, Eliot was here the other day talking about uh, the Odyssey and how the Cyclops was outside of society and he was a hermit, a loner. He didn't live in community. And that was one of the things that made him a monster instead of a human. So this is a really intrinsically Greek sentiment. Yeah, this, this notion that you want to be part of, well, if you're an Athenian, sort of a polis, but then 
elsewise in a community, right? This is this is always the tension in even just Greek literature, right? In the in the tragedies, there's always this question of like, do I honor my fam family or do I honor sort of the more general community, right? That's that's something that's very felt, and like you were saying with the Cyclops, right? He is by himself and he has a sheep, and Odysseus wants to be. <laughs> like back in Ithaca with his people and his wife and, you know, their son and so forth. And as surrounded by the people who make up his community rather than, you know, by himself on an island, <laughs> even, you know, even if he has sort of godlike favors conferred on him, he'd rather have the community than, you know, this, this huge favor. So yeah, I see what you're saying about that Greek sense that you want to be in community. Yeah, if you've heard the expression, man is a political animal, that uh -huh. comes from Aristotle, and mm. political there means of the polis, of yeah. the city. Man is intrinsically part of a community, and friendship for Aristotle is a building block of community. Mm -hmm. For him, friendship starts out anyway as an extremely broad category. Mm -hmm. Any couple people or a group of people can be friends. And this goes for equals, uh, people of the same age, people of different ages, people of different social groups or wealth or whatever. But he definitely has things to say about how those things impact what could be a balanced friendship. I think, I think this is particularly sort of relevant as we're in this era that we find ourselves in in history, particularly after COVID, where people were isolated from each other for so long. There seems to be this crisis of of community and of friendship, right? You have uh, these a generation of people who feel more and more lonely and record sort of levels of depression and things of that sort. And it it seems, you know, when I was younger, I thought that I didn't need people, <laughs> and it seems more and more like. The more that we're sort of exposed to this age of of people being isolated for, from each other, the more obvious it becomes that we need other people to sort of be able to thrive. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that idea that you can't be happy without friends is is important. So how does Aristotle sort of see people going about pursuing the virtue of friendship? You said it can take place between different parties, but what is what does friendship for Aristotle consist of? Well, it's mutual goodwill, where you know that the goodwill is mutual, and it's a shared life. Mm -hmm. There are other aspects to it, but those are sort of the core parts, uh, the core me mechanics. He says it's, you know, lots of people have goodwill toward people they don't really know. This is mm -hmm. why we uh, give to charity or help people randomly. And we could have goodwill toward each other without knowing each other. But for it to be friendship, like you have to be aware that the other person has goodwill towards you and they have to be aware vice versa. The word for friendship in Greek is philia, and that's a cognate of phileo, which is to love. So even etymologically, uh, friendship is about loving. And for Aristotle, I mean, he just leans into that. He speaks in terms of loving each other. And sometimes we love each other well for good reasons, sometimes not so much. He doesn't really get too much into what it means to love another person, mm -hmm. except for just when he's talking about friendship being about goodwill. He says, 
Affection is often there, but not really necessary because affection can come and go. But what we're really talking about is an active condition that has to do with the will, with choices. It's not something that happens to you, which is what emotions are. It's something that you decide and act upon. So it's volitional. So if I'm following what you're saying correctly, to be a friend to another person, I don't necessarily have to feel like kindly towards them, right? I don't have to. That's what you mean by affection. Mm -hmm. I don't have to look at them and be like, man, that's just a great guy. What I have to have is this sense that I am interested in looking out for your good. And I know that you're interested in looking out for my good. Is that right? That's perhaps a little strong okay. for his, I mean, that would be one kind of friendship. Okay. It's a general well-wishing uh -huh. that may or may not come with warm fuzzies. Uh -huh. uh, the closer the friendship and maybe the better the friendship, the closer it's going to get to the what you were talking about, okay. like actively working toward the good of the other person. Okay. So he has different, he has different sort of levels of friendship then. Can we talk about what are the different levels then? That he has. Yeah. Well, I think he'd consider them uh, kinds rather than levels. Okay. And they're based around what is being valued. Okay. So the first two are the ones that he is not as impressed with, but he also thinks they're necessary. They're really common. Uh -huh. Nothing bad about them. They're just, mm, you know, whatever. One is friendships of pleasure, where basically you enjoy somebody else's company, they enjoy yours, everybody's having a good time, that kind of thing. He says this is really common among the young because they yeah. are very much affected by their emotions. I imagine this would probably fall into, you know, like sometimes you have friends who share interests, but you're not necessarily like, you would say like, we're not great friends, but we like mm -hmm. this same, we like the same music or we like these same kinds of movies or whatever. And you, you sort of have a mute or like, you know, board game friends or something where you have a shared interest and you like hanging out with this person as far as that goes, but you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily like, you know, the, this commitment to looking out for the other person's good is like, mm -hmm. it's kind of heavy duty. And it's like, it's not necessarily like, that's the level at which I interact with this person, but I like their company well enough. Yeah. And I wish them well, because, you know, if something bad happened to them, I wouldn't be able right. to hang out with them anymore. Right. But it's not like I'd probably necessarily do much about it okay yeah and aristotle uses words like um charming people uh -huh. who just like they're nice to be around uh -huh. yeah so there's a lot of width to this yeah yeah the second kind of friendship is the friendship of usefulness and this feels uh -huh. very mercenary when we talk about it because uh -huh. it's like you're basically exchanging goods of some sort right a lot of these are going to be non-physical so yeah. something like honor the uh -huh. you know the one guy talks you up so that everyone thinks that you're wonderful right. and you sort of repay him in yeah. some way could could you imagine this being like i don't know as you go through as you go through life you meet people who have sort of different expertise different connections and you might be you know you might call your your friend who's a plumber you know, you don't hang out with him a lot, but you're like, hey, I have this plumbing problem. Could you like walk me through sort of like, mm -hmm. do I need somebody to come out for this? Or could you, is that the kind of thing that he has in mind is like, yeah, you have somebody who has, you know, they have knowledge that you don't have and, and you can sort of like, there's sort of a reciprocation of those of, of like knowledge or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Aristotle's way of 
like I'm just going to read a quote real quick. Sure. He says, these people love one another insofar as something good comes to them from one another. Yeah. So yeah, it could be something like trading someone's plumbing skills for someone else's baking skills yeah. or babysitting for uh -huh. something else, or it could be something intangible. Basically, uh -huh. if you and the other person both have something that the other one values uh -huh. and you make trades, not like with contracts or anything, just right. sort of informally, that's a friendship of usefulness. Yeah. Aristotle's take is that friendships of usefulness are really common among the older generation uh -huh. because they've kind of burned off a lot of the whole like emoting emoting stuff. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're not quite so hormonal anymore or something. Yeah. And they are starting to feel the, you know, pain in their joints right. and they're just they kind of want to just be taken care of and yeah. not have to worry about stuff and they tend to have the resources to and they know yeah. a lot of people who have good stuff and yeah. so they'll have this kind of friendship. You might have you might have a neighbor who's a little spryer who can do your weeds mm -hmm. and you can do the mm -hmm. you know you can Yes. It's a sort of scratch your back. Yeah. yeah. Or has a grandson who'll come over and mow your yard. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, that can feel mercenary, but that does also feel like very real. That oh, yeah. Barn know. raisings are sort of the communal right. version of right. friendships of usefulness. Right. And uh, Aristotle says that these two, friendships of pleasure and friendships of usefulness, are also going to be typically short-lived. Uh -huh. As soon as you don't find the other person's company enjoyable, right. it just sort of naturally dissolves. You might, you. this was the sort of thing when it seems like my impression is in these latter years, people have become more mobile, able mm -hmm. to sort of move. There's not so much of, you know, there. there's less of a feeling of like classic Americana of like small town sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And it does, it does seem like part of the thing about the small town is like those people just lived over there. So you were friends right, with right. them. Or even so, neighborhoods in big cities. Yeah. Those yeah. are falling and apart so you also. Would, so you, but you would have these friendships of pleasure and friendships of usefulness like you're describing might have been longer term back in the day mm -hmm. because nobody moved anywhere. Yeah. And the thing is now as people sort of move, you know, to a new city for a new job, it's like they switch out who these people mm -hmm. are because they don't actually have this sort of deeper relationship. They just have this, this sort of level or, or kind of relationship with the people you know, around them right. at the t for the time being. And then as they go somewhere new, they find other people who sort of feel the same yes. or similar need. Yes, this is an insight that Aristotle has that has been either overlooked or downplayed, which uh, is the importance of geography, if you yeah. will. He talks about shared life, but he specifically talks about place right. in this context. I think we have sort of fooled ourselves into thinking, and I'm putting my own cards on the table here, that virtual presence is enough to carry us through these friendships. And I mean, Aristotle is just going to tell you, no, you have to share a life. And that doesn't mean texting. Right. I mean, you have to live in one another's proximity right. and literally rub elbows, or you're just not going to have the same kind of relationship. Right. And from my perspective, this is one of the big mistakes that we Americans made at some point was to think that we could always do long distance, even if that just meant like across the city kind of long distance. Right. If I just see somebody at church once a week, that'll right. be enough. Or if I see them at pub night once a month, that's right. fine, right? 
And those things are an aspect of shared life, but they're not enough to qualify for Aristotle's version of friendship. Yeah. Now, you've been implying that there's another kind of friendship, Mm -hmm. which I presume is the one that Aristotle thinks is the best kind. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, I have have sort of a, a tangential question, which is, so we've been sort of talking about, okay, so these these relationships of pleasure and these relationships of usefulness, you know, they're not as long lasting. They're not as, you know, they're not, they don't have the same kind of depth or weight to them that presumably this, this last kind has. But I am wondering would a lot of the, the crisis of friendlessness, do you think Aristotle would say that this crisis of friendlessness would still be ameliorated if we had more of these kinds of relationships even though they are not as deep as the the sort of final kind that he's going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He does not expect very many people to have the kind of deep friendship he's yeah. going to that we're, we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. And he doesn't expect those people to have very many of those friendships. Yeah. They're few and far between, partly because they're dependent on the people in them being good people right. in his sense of the word. Yeah. And those people are few and far between. Yeah. So this this is very interesting because it does seem like there is a, I don't know what to call it, possibly like a, a Puritanism maybe that's sort of like, well, if it's not the best version of a thing, it's not worth having, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you can sort of see, if you look at the friendships of pleasure and the, you know, just intuitively, even if you're not working with Aristotle's categories, you're like, you know, this person really isn't my best friend or isn't sort of, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't have a friendship with this person at the deepest level. And I feel like there is a strain of our culture that is sort of, that is that that has a sort of tendency to go, well, that's not the very best kind, so we don't need that kind at all. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be really problematic. So even though, you know, it is desirable to sort of have this final thing which we which we will address in a moment, that's not to say that these other things aren't sort of even necessary for human life. Yeah, if we took that perspective toward food, we'd all starve to death. <laughs> And that's kind of what you do emotionally, um, mm-hmm. psychologically, perhaps, if you mm-hmm. take that perspective on friendship. Yeah, remember for Aristotle, friendship is a part of this overall system of how to live a good human life mm-hmm. in community with other humans. Mm-hmm. And if the very nature of this final kind of friendship really restricts the number of people who can be involved in one, then that leaves a very big gap for living right. in community with everybody else you need to live in community with. And so it makes a lot of sense that most of your friendships would be friendships of pleasure and yeah. use. And you wouldn't necessarily worry about holding on to them too tightly. Yeah. As long as you have enough of them and you're not doing harm to the people in them, either while you're in the friendship or as it dissolves, then Aristotle is going to be very much a proponent of having a lot of those friendships. I think there's something to like recognizing how relationships change. Mm -hmm. You know, you were saying earlier, this idea of the youth having these friendships of pleasure. And it seems like high schoolers have this sense of like, Oh, my high school friends are going to be my friends forever, you know? And sometimes they end up having a friend or two who like ends up being like a really long-term sort of really good friend to them for Mm -hmm. a long time in their life. 
but they just don't have the sort of sense of like, oh, life involves things changing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful. You know, this insight that you're saying that, that we often overlook from it. It's really helpful to have this idea of like, oh, my relationships are going to change throughout my life. And it's okay if they're not all, mm-hmm. you know, this like soul, <laughs> you know, enriching kind of like looking out for the, you know, like we've got each other's back, you know, like it's okay if it's not that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've we've been promising to get to this third kind of friendship. So why don't we talk about that, and then we can we possibly we can tease out more implications of this whole system of friendship and and things that might be helpful for us to reflect on. But tell us about what's the final kind of what does he call the final kind of friendship, and what does it consist of, sort of in more detail. So typically, this gets translated as the complete friendship, but basically, what he's getting at here is. This is the best kind of relationship that two human beings can have with each other. Uh-huh. He leaves it theoretically open that you could have like three friends in this kind of friendship, but he doesn't think it's real likely that it happens. He uh-huh. says all the great friends you ever hear about come in twos. Uh-huh. And my take is like it takes so much uh, emotional capital, if you will, to invest in this kind of a friendship that most people just can't afford more than one friend like this. Mm-hmm. Well, The characteristics of the complete friendship are that these two people are good and alike, specifically alike in their virtue, alike in their goodness. Part of why being good is important for Aristotle is that it doesn't really help to will the good of the other person if you don't know what the good is and if you're not good yourself. Like, I want the good for this person, but then you go ahead and, like, incite them to vice because you don't really understand what the good is, and you're not a good person yourself, right? So that's that's a limiting factor. There's a fair amount of recent literature about the possibility of bad people being friends. I mean, we all think bad people can be friends. It, it shows up all over the place. The question is, can bad people be, like, good friends in Aristotle's sense? Uh-huh. No, not in Aristotle's sense. What do we mean? Do we mean like extreme loyalty, like self-sacrifice? Like what are we talking about? There's a delightful paper that I read when I was working on my dissertation, and it's a shortened version of the the adage, a friend will help you move, but a good friend will help you move a body. <laughs> and uh, it's the question of like, where do where do ethics fit into friendship? Do you have to like give up some of yours for the good of your friend? Right. Do you have to def- defer to them on moral questions? Where do these things all come in? And Aristotle yeah. is going to just be like, no, if you're a good friend, you're a friend who is good. Right. That's what a good <laughs> friend is, right? And then your friend is also good, and then you can be good to each other. And right. as it turns out, having a friend who is good is very useful. Because what are the best things that you can give each other but, like, encouragement in becoming better people? Uh And that's what they do for each other. And as it turns out, if you are good, goodness is pleasant to you. So part of the reason this gets called complete friendship. Is because it has all the other qualities in it. Exactly. So you get, you you aim for the the good and then you get the pleasant and the useful uh, side dishes or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, one adage in sort of a traditional version of America that sort of pines for the community of yesteryear 
is is this very sort of adage, you know, I married my best friend. Mm-hmm. So so Aristotle's from a different time. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the Greeks tended to on the one hand sort of in 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 their social sort of interactions with each other not think women were sort of very important. On the other hand, there's, you know, some of their great pieces of literature have incredible heroines who are the best people mm-hmm. involved. So is Arist- how is Aristotle sort of thinking? Does he have anything to say about how this kind of friendship might interact with marriage? Or is he just assuming this isn't going to be a married relationship? Like, do you have any sense of like what he's imagining here? Sure, he doesn't address that particular question directly, but you can kind of glean from the other stuff he says that he's not expecting men and women to have this kind of a friendship. Uh He does say that when he's sort of listing natural friendships, that if it if the relationship between the two people isn't a friendship, you know there's a problem, Uh like parents to children, that kind Uh of thing. Um, Husbands and wives Uh make his list. He's like. How does he put it? He says something like, people tend to pair off more than even other kinds of associations. So like, this is a super basic building block of society, of uh-huh. community. It's one of the most foundational friendships you're going to have. Mm-hmm. But he never talks about that in the context of the complete friendship. And he yeah. never brings up examples when he's talking about sure. the complete friendship of men and women. Yeah. Again, living in another time where he does bring up men and women another time is when he's talking about unequal friendships, Mm -hmm. friendships between adults and children, friendships between rulers and the Mm -hmm. ruled. He has a a bunch of a list. And his take on unequal friendships, which is to say friendships in which one person has a position of superiority in some way. And he's including things like wealth versus not having wealth, all that sort of thing. He says, there's a way to have proportionality instead of equality. Yeah. And the proportionality is what makes the friendship work, makes mm-hmm. it balance instead of just being like unhealthy and weird. Right. He says that, well, so far we talked about pleasure, both sides, they love pleasure. So they get that from their friends or they mm-hmm. friendships of usefulness. They love particular things, love very loosely. They want them, they value them and they get those from their friends. Uh, in the complete friendship, they value the person themselves for their mm-hmm. own sakes, and they want the good of the other person for that person's sake rather right. than for their own sake, right? So in all of those cases, you have both people in the relationship wanting the same things basically from each other. Maybe not exactly the same things, but either a good, a pleasure, or the good for the other person. Right. In the case of unequal friendships, a lot of times the way this kind of gets made up is that they offer different things to each other. So the rich man might support the poorer man, but the poorer man brings honor to the rich man. So they don't give the same things to one another, but there's a kind of proportionality. Interestingly, he thinks that children should have a lot of affection toward their parents. Uh And parents apparently aren't really required to care much (laughs) because they're already... So aristocratic. (laughs) Well, it's because the parents have already given the children so much. And the children, like, what do they have to give their parents? Dirty diapers and snotty noses. Uh So they had Uh better pay up with some serious, you know, loyalty and affection. Serious loyalty and affection. But it's this idea, even if you aren't equal, you can have this balance based on a kind of proportional relationship. Uh So back to the whole husbands and wife question. Aristotle would probably 
I mean, he might find it amusing to think, to, to take the American adage, and like, I married my best friend. He'd be like, really? Uh, he'd, <laughs> he'd also be like, well, it couldn't be a complete friendship because everybody gets married fairly young and you can't have developed a complete friendship when you're yes, young. You yes. haven't had enough time to live together, sure, right? And sure. you, you haven't had enough time to become virtuous. Yeah. Like, young people aren't going to have this kind of friendship, not because they couldn't, like, in potentia, they don't have the potential to become complete friends, but they just haven't lived together long enough yeah. and they haven't lived long enough to become, to develop virtue in themselves right. and become good enough to be good friends. Yeah. Thinking about, there is also the difference between a husband and wife and, and, and sort of good friends. The good friends pre presumably, they don't have anything formal binding them. Right? Not necessarily. Like, correct. Right. So like marriage, there is this vow of like, I have, I'm looking out for your good, mm -hmm. which, which turns into that sort of complete, maybe, yeah. Ideally, like, yeah. Yeah. But you, but you had in some sense, be, I got married young. So in, in, in a sense, like I needed that vow to propel me mm -hmm. into a better form of friendship with my wife than I might have had with just with this person if we weren't married, mm -hmm. right? Because, that's just based on sort of like voluntarily being, you mm -hmm. know? And so there's this interesting dynamic of the complete friendship that you're doing this voluntarily, mm -hmm. even if there's nothing else propelling you. And that seems to be different than, than marriage. The, the dynamic there is like just a little bit different. Yeah. And I think Aristotle is sort of observing this voluntary sort of thing. And that's possibly why he's not sort of like, thinking about this. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of ideas, particularly with regard to friendship, and we've been alluding to sort of how this relates to, you know, our modern crisis of friendship and living in community and how all of that works. Do you have any final thoughts on how how people should think about this? Or are there things that you think that need to be added to this conception that might help people as they're sort of wrestling with this crisis of friendship? What What do you think the takeaways from this should be? Hmm. I suppose I'd have to reiterate the sort of fundamental nature of actual closeness to humanity. I think one of the downsides of the Enlightenment project of the whole cerebralization of our self-conception is that we've kind of forgotten how to just be around each other. A friend of mine writes, I don't even know how to describe it. I guess it's probably like fan fiction or something. But she's sort of in on this like young authors who self-publish or publish mm -hmm. on the internet and never see the light of a library kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And her comment was that so much of what's being published by this young generation or not published by this young generation has to do with things like trauma. She used the, the phrase touch starved, which I found interesting. But a lot of the things that these people are pointing out is how disconnected or connected in bad ways they feel with the people around them with whom they should be having community. The combination of that with this sort of called a crisis of loneliness seems like both of those are to be addressed, in, at least in part, by returning to a way of living together that goes beyond ways in which we connect verbally or 
across long distances. I have nothing against long distance friendships. I have quite a number of them myself, mm -hmm. but they're not enough for human beings. Um, one of the big themes that shows up in feminist ethics is embodiment. And you can argue whether like the feminists are right and that's like a male thing that they've done to society. But regardless, we tend to forget the extent to which we are our bodies. We tend to think about like we're little people walking around in meat suits. It's like, no, actually we, we are our bodies in some real ways. And we tend to forget that part of friendship is being physically around other people and just breathing the same air and living with someone out of the corner of your eye. And no amount of texting is going to make up for that. Well, Naomi, I think this conversation has been great. Thank you for coming along to talk about Aristotle and his take on friendship. It's been uh, fun. I always like talking about Aristotle and friendship. I think I'm going to close this this episode out slightly differently. Usually we give you our email if you have thoughts about this. But on the note of needing to be close to people to live in community, I mean, ultimately, this podcast is a podcast of Gutenberg College. And if you want to if you want to or know a student who might want to be part of a community where you have to, as you said, live with each other out of the corner of your eye, out of the corner of your eye with people, right? If you want to rub elbows with other people who are interested in these same ideas and taking on these same, these same ideas, but most importantly, just being around each other and figuring out how to do that well, then you can go to our website at gutenberg.edu to figure out how to apply or, you know, recommend somebody apply to our college. Or in the meantime, come and visit us. Yes. We have preview days coming up April 14th and 15th for people to visit campus, to sit in on a class, to talk to the tutors, to talk to the students, eat a meal with us. Get as much of a sense as you can without just living here, what it's like to be a part of the Gutenberg community. This has been the Gutenberg College Podcast. I hope you folks have enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us next time.